Hello and welcome to the November slash December 2019 edition of HCI at UCD, a monthly podcast with our seminar series guests. I'm Justin Edwards, a PhD student here at UCD, and today I'm joined via Skype by Professor Anna Cox of the University College London Interaction Center. I was once a visitor at UCLIC, so it's especially delightful to have you here. Thanks for joining us, Anna. Oh, thanks for having me. So your talk was a couple of weeks ago, um, or a week and a half ago, I'd say, here at UCD, and we didn't get a chance to record at the time, but I thought it was especially important that we make sure we get this podcast in. I think your talk is something that's uh, going to be really interesting to a lot of our listeners and people that follow this seminar series. So your talk was about behavior change apps that support well-being and mentioned that while there's a load of these apps that exist, they end up not supporting long-term behavior change. Can you give us some ideas about the ways that these behavior change apps work and why they end up getting abandoned by people? Sure. So in my work, I've looked at um, different types of apps that all say that they're going to help you live a healthier life in some way. So some of these are apps that try to encourage you to be more physically active, for example. And when we look at how people use these, we see that for some people, they engage with them over a long period. So uh, I'm one of those people. I like to track my steps. Um, Other people abandon the use of these technologies really quite quickly so we know that about a third of fitness trackers, for example, uh, end up at the back of a drawer somewhere within about six months. So there's actually quite a significant number of people who abandon using their technology. Now, sometimes they abandon it because they um, they feel it's not giving them any use. Um, so that could be that Uh, They, for example, they might start tracking their steps and then discover that they're not nearly as active as they should be. But the gap between where they are and where they think they should be just seems enormous. And they have no there's no real support for helping them change their behavior. Um, and, And that's where I think there's a real problem that we need to think about how should these technologies work such to really help people change their behavior rather than just track their behavior. But of course, some people abandon them because um, they've kind of, they've served their purpose. So they might use a fitness tracker and discover that they're not quite as active as they should be and decide that they're going to change their behavior by changing their mode of transport, perhaps. So instead of um, getting the bus to work, perhaps they will cycle. Now, once they've made that change, they don't need the technology anymore. So that might be a reason that they abandon it. So I think when we look at abandonment, we, we need to sort of dig a bit deeper and understand the reasons why, because sometimes it might be success. <laughs> Right. Interesting. Yeah. I hadn't really considered that, that, yeah, if you, you know, if you achieve your fitness goal or your well-being goal with one of these apps, then 
yeah, if, if it doesn't support kind of future maintenance or it doesn't support a new goal that you have, then you don't need that app that got you there in the first place. Yeah, and and some people have already shown that many of these, tr particularly wearable trackers, um, they're not necessarily very uh, attractive to wear. Um, so we have a paper that's title is uh, the good the bad and the ugly mm -hmm. because people talked about how um, smart watches and fitness trackers you know might not go with their outfit or and that might be a reason why they decide not to wear it right. um, so you know there really are qu quite a lot of different reasons why someone might decide not to use it anymore right very interesting yeah lots of kind of hidden reasons for abandonment that might not have anything to do with like the content or the behavior itself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so of course, establishing new long-term behaviors might become conflated with creating a dependency on the app or the service or the company that developed that behavior in the first place, as you alluded to in the talk, uh, how can designers make sure that what they're getting people hooked on, what they're establishing that dependency on is, the actual well-being supporting behavior and not per just using the app itself per se uh, or yeah. is this even a difference that we should be worried about well I think um, you know when we look at how you know the difficulties we experience with changing our behavior um, we see that there is a really big gap between our intentions and our actions and, um, you know, I talked, I mentioned in the talk how we just need to look at what happens every new year when we make New Year's yeah. resolutions. Um, and we have all these like high hopes about what we're going to do and how our life is going to be different. But actually changing our behavior is really, really difficult. And that's because it is um, not just influenced by our wishes and desires but also influenced by lots of other things including our environment and often we need to think about how we can use our environment to support a new behavior or to stop triggering a behavior we don't want to do anymore so um, you know it's much easier to res to stop eating chocolate biscuits if you don't buy them in the first place if you don't put them in your environment um, but when we, you know, if you try and think about, well, what would a technology look like that stopped me eating chocolate biscuits? That it's not very easy to imagine what that might look like. Um, and certainly we don't have great examples. Most um, technologies that are trying to support people eating healthily, um, they support the tracking of what you eat. And they don't really um, do much in terms of helping you think about all the steps you need to go through in order to really change your habits. Um, and I think that actually thinking about habits is a really important when we're trying to create these kind of digital health technologies. If we look at um, the kind of the literature on how habits form, it can help us think about the steps someone has to go through in order to develop a new habit. And that helps us to start thinking about how we can support the different stages of habit formation 
rather than using technology as simply a reminder to do a thing. Now, the reason that using technologies as a reminder is a problem is that we know that in lots of situations, technology fails. So if you have a reminder on your phone to um, take some medication or to do some physical activity, you need to be right next to your phone when that reminder comes. And you need to be in the right context in which to perform that behavior. So if you get this reminder and you're nowhere near your medication, you might, you know, stop the alarm going off and think, oh, I'll, I'll go and do that in a minute and then very easily forget. And so when we look at how um, reminders work in terms of setting up habits, we can see that they they can easily fail in that we won't necessarily carry out that behavior. And just having a reminder to do something doesn't help us change our environment to support our habit. Right. Really, we need something that's going to say, uh, that's going to remind us that we need to put our medication in a particular sort of place and the, to think about when in our daily routine we're likely to need to take our medication and can we use our daily routine as a reminder or a trigger to perform that action. Yeah, I'm struck by the to the extent that environment is so important in habit formation. Um, I, I I think about some of the apps that I've tried out myself and what some of these apps are like, and they're very kind of one size fits all that you, you know, you fill out the template for yourself of what your routine should be, or you, you know, you log your three meals a day or however it goes. Um, but there's not the sort of level of maybe personalization or uh, consideration of kind of things outside of what that app tracks that might be uh, affecting what that app tracks. Yeah, I wonder if um, these apps just don't get into like a kind of holistic or personal enough level with the person trying to use them. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, there's a there's probably good reason. Yeah, of course. Why, why there's lots of these technologies that help you track stuff. And some of that is because we can build them. Yeah. Um, it's relatively easy to build a tracker, you know, something that lets you record something manually. Um, we even have sensors that enable us to track certain things automatically. So we make tracking super easy. But to, to really design technologies that are going to support us changing our behavior in some way, I think we need to get a really good understanding of the behavior change literature and if you're a technology designer you don't necessarily have access to it um, or even know it's available or where to look for it um, and actually there are a huge number of behavior change techniques and I think looking at those and thinking about how they support behavior change um, might provide inspiration for new forms of technological support. Right. Okay. So yeah, on the kind of on the topic of these trackers and sensors being so kind of prolific and out there, um, I know some of your recent work has focused on personal informatics and the quantified self movement, as you discussed in your talk. So that's kind of a movement of people trying to better understand and improve themselves by recording all this data about themselves and viewing that data. 
Um, is this an area where you think the behavior change app designers can gain some more insight from the people who are already interested in that stuff? Um, in terms of understanding more about the quantified self, as you mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think I think what's interesting about people who engage in long-term tracking is that they're not always doing it to with the idea that they want to change something. Right. Okay. Um, and and so. You know, it is interesting to look at the people who really enjoy tracking and understand why they do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, but but I think it's not always super obvious to people why they do things. So, for example, if I think about why do I track my steps every day, I just quite like having the data. Um, I find it interesting to look at it doesn't necessarily make me want to change my behavior. Um, and I wouldn't say I'm tracking because I want to change my behavior. I'm not even sure I'm that interested in monitoring my behavior. I just like numbers and graphs. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. So, you know, so I think, um, so, you know, understanding people who might identify as being part of the quantified self movement, it's interesting to understand their practices and why they engage in them. Um, if only so that we don't make the mistake of thinking that they're a good example and that we should design for their needs, because their needs might be very, very different to the needs of people who really want to change their behavior. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. That, yeah, that, goals of a quantified selfer might be very different than the person who's downloading some of these apps anyway, but the outcomes might be more suitable right now for a quantified selfer's purposes where you just kind of get all your numbers. Um, yeah. So looking into kind of another area uh, that you're interested in related to this, I also wonder um, about, so you're involved with Kai Play, the ACM conference about games, play, and HCI. I suspect that that might be another area where we can learn more about behavior change apps. Um, are there any things that you can think of that games get right that these apps might fall short at? Yeah, so I think that, you know, there are a whole load of people who are um, doing a lot of research looking at gamification. So yeah. the idea that we can look at games and see, try to understand why they are so good at engaging people and how they achieve that level of engagement and then take those mechanics and apply them to other digital systems or other parts of life and use them as a way to motivate people to engage in something. And, and so we see um, systems, you know, they've been used in as kind of educational systems to try to motivate people to learn stuff. So, you know, you might complete um, an assignment and you get some badge, some reward, um, or you might uh, get points for getting a, um, through various different stages in some kind of learning package. Um, and those things in, you know, they have some success, but I'm not, they haven't really been the magic wand that I think people hoped for. Right. 
but I think there are some really interesting things that maybe we might be able to learn from, particularly for um, when we're looking at behavior change technologies or personal informatics technologies. So one area are, are that um, there are a whole range of games that encourage you to play every day. So they're quite casual games. Um, they don't take very long to play. And, but they have mechanics in them that, in, that reward you for daily interaction. Right. And it might be that if we look at those mechanics and think about whether those could be applied to a different uh, kind of app, that, that they, might, they might work for if we need people to engage on that kind of very regular basis. Right. Yeah. I think about like my language learning app hassles me uh, pretty regularly to keep on doing my language lessons. But my uh, the app I use at the gym doesn't really hassle me to go to the gym. Uh, it doesn't give me like a like I have a daily streak going with my language learning app. So it's important to me that I keep my streak going for whatever reason. Um, and yeah, I wonder if I a, a streak mechanic like that would help me or make me even less inclined to go to the gym. I'm not sure. Yeah, so so I think, you know, understanding how some of the language learning apps um, are using rewards to encourage you to do a bit of daily practice, um, whether if we had that kind of mechanic in something that encouraged you to do your 10 daily press-ups or something, mm. you know, maybe it would work in those sorts of contexts. But I think we need to understand the limits on how those sorts of, uh, you know, where those sorts of things are going to be effective. Sure. Um, interacting with your language learning app is something that people don't tend to do for a very long period of time. It's something you can fit in quite quickly. Yeah. Um, and maybe they, therefore, those things only apply to similar sorts of behaviours, that they have to be fairly short for that kind of to work and be effective. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very good point that, you know, understanding that the the magic wand might not be out there, that, you know, you, you take what you can get, where you can get it from these different different practices like the education apps have, but... Yeah, nothing's going to um, magically cure, you know, people not always wanting to do their press-ups or something. Um, yeah, and the, getting people to change their behavior is really difficult. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, having lots of little things that might help with that influence could be useful, but yeah. um, none of them are a magic wand. Yeah, right. Um, so a lot of your work has a, a strong message about work-life balance. Um, that's also a, a message you really cultivate in your, your public profile. I think of your Twitter as somewhere I draw inspiration from that I need to find balance in my own uh, life sometimes. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about your interest in that topic and how you kind of support balance for yourself? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, I have to own up to the fact that part of my interest in here is because I don't feel like I get it right. Yeah. So I'm constantly looking for, you know, what's the next uh, hack I can find that's going to make me 
more productive but take yeah. up less time. Um, but I think that, um, you know, in one of the things I've been looking at in my research is the way that technology um, supports us in getting our work done um, and supports us in many um, parts of our personal life in terms of connecting us to other people, using social media or um, just all the different kinds of communication channels that we have. Um, we can look at our calendar. Uh, we can play games. We can do all sorts of things on them. Um, but we tend to, in the main, um, have, for example, one smartphone, which might have both our work-related apps on, but also things that really are part of our personal life. Right. And that's understandable because these technologies are expensive. Um, but a downside of this is that... Um, you can end up starting out to use your technology with perhaps the intention of playing a game and then you notice that you're, there's a work email and you think, oh, well, I'll just look at that whilst I'm here. And so um, seeing how the technology blurs the boundaries between work and non-work has been something that I've been looking at for a while and uh, also looking at what strategies people adopt to try to put boundaries around these different parts of their life and um and and not experience the challenges that come with this sort of blurring so um i think it's really interesting looking at how that how we can take the practices of people that seem to have really good balance and see how easy they are to implement in the lives of people who are experienced challenges. So we've been doing that um, with academics and with junior doctors. And okay. currently I have some students who are um, looking at how these strategies might work for undergraduate and postgraduate students too. Very good. I Yeah, I'm grateful kind of as a member of this uh, professional community that you're someone who's about you know the struggles we all probably go through with work-life balance and that you're looking into this stuff that I think it's really valuable to uh, just about anyone um, and it's a topic that HCI really should be focusing on so my final question for you um, the HCI at UCD podcast is decidedly supportive of organized labor, and we are in solidarity with our friends and colleagues in the current university, college, university and college union strike. So I've seen a lot about the strike on your Twitter over the past few weeks, and I just wanted to give you the floor if there's anything you wanted to say about the strike in general or any message of support to your own friends and colleagues uh, in the UCU. Well, I... Um... One of the reasons that people have been on strike is because uh, of the academic workloads. Mm -hmm. And it kind of ties, this is where it sort of ties in with the work-life balance stuff yeah. that I'm interested in. Because I think one of the things about academic work is that typically academics are amazingly enthusiastic about their work. And um, that interest and motivation in their work um, 
means that they're very easily persuaded to overwork. And uh, there are concerns, I think, that academics are being asked to do more and more and more as we see systems change within universities. Um, and, and this is something that it's not good for anybody if you end up being so exhausted that you can't do your best work. Yeah. Um, and it's been really interesting this morning as uh, today is the first day that people who've been on strike have uh, gone back to work. Right. And there is some, you know, seeing the people's reflections on what it was like to be on strike are very, are very interesting. And they talk about the uh, new contacts they've made on the picket lines and where, they, where they've been able to mix with people from other parts of their university who they wouldn't normally come across and how supportive they have found developing those relationships and what new opportunities those might offer. So I think we should also think about how do we get people to spend more time together yeah. where um, they just get the opportunity to chat. Yeah, how can we foster friendships in like these professional environments without having everyone, you know, have to be on strike or something? Like, yeah, it's kind of crazy that these people work together yeah, all the time. And to, this is how they met. You shouldn't have to go on strike to get that opportunity. Yeah. Well, very good. I'm, uh, I'm delighted to talk about that, and I'm really excited to give our audience the chance to hear about all of these interesting topics. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this month. And thank you so much for being our seminar series guest in November. Well, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. And is there any, uh, anything you would like to plug? You want to give your Twitter handle out or anything like that? Yeah, it's Anna Cox with an underscore at the end. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much, Anna. That's Professor Anna Cox from the University College London Interaction Centre. It was a pleasure having you on. Thanks a lot. The HCI at UCD podcast is available at hci.ucd.ie, where you can also find our guests' seminar presentation slides and more information about the UCD HCI community. You can also find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Follow HCI underscore UCD on Twitter to keep up with our research group. Our theme music is Robot Park by Poddington Bear.